This is Bill Newman, WHMP. Welcome to the show. As many of our listeners know, there is a race for the Democratic nomination for sheriff here in Hampshire County. The Democratic nominee will, as a practical matter, be the next sheriff. There is no Republican running for this office this time. No independent has taken out papers, as far as I know. The three candidates are Caitlin Cepeda, Yvonne Gittleson, and Pat Kalane, who is, of course, the incumbent sheriff. We have had uh, Yvonne Gittleson with us. We, in a previous show, we have with us this morning Caitlin Cepeda. Thank you so much for being with us, Caitlin. Really appreciate it. We will have Pat Kalane on uh, in due course, I'm sure. Uh, Caitlin Cepeda. You want to become the sheriff of Hampshire County. Uh, the Democratic nominee will become the next sheriff as a practical matter. So I know, I know this, this may be distressing to you, but I think that most people are paying or have paid up to this time relatively little attention for the race. And I know that drives candidates crazy because you work and you work and you work and you work and people don't, just don't know. Down ballot races. Um, so I would appreciate it if you would take the opportunity, take two minutes. You probably have something in the nature of a stump speech. For those who have not been paying attention to the race, perhaps you could introduce yourself to them. And for those who know you, I'm sure they'll be happy to hear it again. So the microphone's yours. Give us the two, give us the two minutes speech. Sure. Thanks very much, Bill. Appreciate you having me here today. Uh, yep. My name is Caitlin Sapita. I'm running for Hampshire County Sheriff. I'm a registered nurse with 10 years of correctional experience, nearly all of it at the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office. I'm up at the Berkshire County Sheriff's Office now. I'm the only candidate continuing to do day-to-day, face-to-face work with the individuals in our care. And the goal of the platform is four-pronged. It's facility modernization. We're an antiquated facility trapped in a time capsule of antiquity. Um, it's expansion of programming and treatment options for the individuals in our care. It's active and aggressive staff recruitment and training. And then it's also community outreach. The community needs to know more about what we're doing so that they're more interested and more active. The Hampshire County Sheriff's Office should be an active community member. People should know what we're doing and should want to help with what we're doing. And we should ultimately be playing that role in public safety by better preparing the individuals in our care for re-entry into this, into this society, into much more modern society. And for a lot of them who have been sentenced for a period of time, a very, very different society post-COVID and what it is they're going to be facing when they re-enter this county, largely. Because these are people that are serving small sentences, two and a half years or less. And if they're probably not so small if you're serving them. Probably not. Absolutely not. No, it becomes, for the nursing staff there, it becomes really a long-term care treatment facility at that point. Oh, I, I understand. I, there's a distinction. I, I, I understand. Yeah. That's helpful. Thank you. And, um, you know, for pretrial um, individuals there, it's a much shorter sentence, but still, they're going to be released out into the community with you. They're going to be pumping gas next to you. They're going to be ordering a Dunkin' Donuts next to you. And so we'd like to them be largely better prepared to re-enter and be contributing members to this county. Okay. So... You are running against Pat Kalane, who's, and, and of course, uh, Yvonne Gittleson as well. That, that's, a, again, in the Democratic primary September 6th, I believe. Correct. Uh, which will decide the race, which will decide who will be the next sheriff. So the sheriffs, uh, it's, I, I actually don't know why we call the person who runs the jail and house of corrections the sheriff, but we do in Massachusetts. It's a holdover term. And do you get a cool badge? No. <laughs> 
Depends on who you look. A lot of them wear fun outfits with badges and stuff uh-huh. on them. That would be the number one for Track me. suits and warm-up suits. I, I saw that I badges know. and outfits was not part of your platform, it, so I don't know. It was not, at least not for me. Okay. <laughs> so uh, what I think listeners might wish to know is, uh, and we should backtrack just for a second, there are two parts of the, the facility. There's the jail and the House of Correction. You want to tell our listeners what the difference is? There's a little bit more than that as well. But oh, they're right. There's an, uh, there, I'm sorry. Sure. Please. And sure. The jail and House of Corrections, it's a distinction between those who are pretrial, those who have not yet been sentenced and adjudicated. and That's the, the jail. Yep. And then the House of Correction, which is those who are serving sentences, which have been sentenced and adjudicated by the rest of the court system and are then sent to the House of Correction for the you know, remainder of their sentence. But those are shorter than, say, prison, right? And that's what's the difference between what's going on in Hampshire County versus the state prison system. Prison is the Department of Correction, entirely different, where you're going to be sentenced to state time and you've largely been um, adjudicated through the superior court system. At the Hampshire County Jail, what percentage, how many people are there there? How many people are there there? That was a horrible sentence. Total census is about 114, 115 right now, and that encompasses everyone who is sentenced to um, or adjudicated to or, you know, is remanded detained to, there. Yeah. detained there. Um, internal census, people physically in the buildings, is about 105 right now. Is that, and that that divides up how between pretrial and sentenced? About 70, 30 pretrial sentenced, largely. So 70% of the mm. people who are there are held on bail. Yeah. Wow. Mm-hmm. Okay. Well, bail or no bail, but yes. Bail or no bail, right. Um, so l- let me ask you this. Is that census, my impression is that census is down a lot from what it had been. Incredibly down. When I started at the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office in 2012, we were running well over or very close to 300 um, max capacity for the facility is somewhere around 360, 375, depending upon how you bunk the beds. And there's been a little bit of construction in between them that have changed things. But COVID changed a lot of things. The census has been decreasing um, fairly steadily over the last five or six years or so. And then COVID really kind of put a kibosh on a lot of things. There were changes to the way that... Um, remands worked through the court system, that nonviolent offenders, particularly drug offenders, were um, diverted to treatment programs if possible, or to electronic leg monitoring if possible, and so that those who are actually coming to the jail or the House of Corrections, particularly during COVID, are very repeat offenders, are violent offenders, um, or are not from our county. Tell us more about that, if you would. We were talking before we came on the air Mm -hmm. about who is actually at the Hampshire County Jail, the 70% who are held because they have no bail. That is, Mm -hmm. the judge says, you can't be released. Mm -hmm. You're either being held with no bail or being held on a dangerousness determination. Um, 30% of the people, about 30, uh, are actually serving sentences, Mm -hmm. maybe 35. Um, Is this a permanent change for the, in in your opinion? It sure looks like it. There tends to be, or there has been over the last several years, a push in the criminal justice system to avoid incarcerating people if possible, particularly if their charges are of what we consider personal offenses. So the possession of drugs, um, that 
that type of, of thing. That if we can get them sentenced or diverted to treatment programs as part of a plea agreement or a part of a diversion program, that that's the way that the criminal justice system is really trying to move, is to stop housing people in incarcerated situations because of a multitude of factors. Um, and we're trying to move them towards a more appropriate form of treatment. Are the people in the Hampshire County Jail and House of Correction from Hampshire County? Approximately half are. The sentence population is fairly indicative of the county. Most of those sentenced individuals are actually from that county. When you start looking at the pretrial population, no, largely they are not. Approximately half are outside of this county and are being held inside of the county for any number of reasons, whether that's a staff conflict in their own county, if that's a gang issue, staff assaults in their own county, any number of issues, but largely half of them or so are not from this county. And there are other uh, jurisdictions that uh, pay Hampshire County and, and the other county jails mm -hmm. as well, and houses of correction, to take their uh, incarcerated persons. Yep. The federal system does. We house federal inmates on occasion, um, state inmates, DOC inmates who are pretrial um, or who are sentenced and are now kind of on the tail end of a longer sentence. And we house them for and any that, number of reasons. And that's because the Department of Correction can, in fact, transfer people. Yes with the sheriff's consent Correct. to the facility. Yes. As long as they're finishing the end of a sentence and they are um, largely of nonviolent offense, though not necessarily, and that this is going to be the community that they are ultimately released back into, it makes more sense to get people closer to those support systems that they're ultimately going to be using upon release. And that's a lot of the reason that we get DOC inmates um, on this side. Um, and the federal system often has... Um, sheriff's offices hold individuals if they're going to be having court locally because one of the nearest you know, federal facilities is in Rhode Island. But if you are going to be having your federal trial outside of the you know, federal courthouse in Springfield, it makes more sense to house you locally. And the, the feds are willing to, to put the bill on that one. We are speaking with Caitlin Cepeda, who is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for sheriff of Hampshire County. The primary will be uh, on September the 6th and will decide as a practical matter who will be the next sheriff. Let me ask you this, if I might. Uh, you've talked about the four planks, four uh, pillars of your campaign, and I would think that there's actually not a lot of disagreement with regard to, or maybe there is, with regard to uh, the need for treatment. But I also assume you're saying that there's are shortcomings by the present uh, sheriff in that regard. So. What is it about treatment that the Hampshire County Jail isn't doing that you would say or do say should be done? I think a lot of it has to do with the lack of modernity and innovation in the facility. Like I said, we're trapped in this time capsule of antiquity where we're using typewriters for record keeping and where we're teaching the individuals in our care chair caning as a means of you know, skill and potential employment. That's not going to be the best use of our resources to prepare these guys for re-entry into a modern society. We should be using the resources that we have and offering you know, a hoisting licensure so that these guys can get released out into the community with skills around construction and building operations, which is gonna be in high demand for the next many, many years with the billions of dollars worth of influx of new infrastructure money from the American Recovery Plan. That would be a way that we should be using our resources. It's a short class. It can be done online. Again, if we updated our technology resources, which are readily you know, available and able to do so with the initiative of an administration that's willing to do so, 
Um, presently, that's not one that we have, but it could be one that we have. And we could be better preparing the individuals for re-entry into a modern society. Of the people who are at the jail uh, in the House of Correction, uh, I, you just told us that about 70% of them are actually held pretrial. They're, mm-hmm. they're, they could be released if they're acquitted. Absolutely. Um, uh, statistically, their odds of being released anytime soon are not great. It depends on what the charge is. Some of them do do their 30 days, 60 days, 90 days, go back to court and get released. Do they come back to us frequently? Sure, that happens too, but a lot of them are going to get released. Even those that don't, the bulk of them are not looking at life sentences. The bulk of them are looking at three years, five years, maybe it's five to ten. They're in their 20s. They're going to be released back into this community or a nearby community still in you know very active working years and shouldn't be passed over just because of the potentiality of a longer sentence. Which I agree with. Let me, let me ask you this. The, the, uh, I'd like to go back to treatment. Um, uh, you were ta- talking about education, and uh, I would like to know if there are uh, programs, educational programs, that you think are d- deficient at the jail, and mm-hmm. we'll get to that, I think, after the break. But uh, t- tell me more about treatment, whether treatment is falling short for the individuals at the jail. I think treatment is absolutely falling short, and I think treatment is also this kind of umbrella term as well. So under treatment, we talk about um, medical treatment, we talk about mental health treatment, we also talk about, um, you know, psychological and emotional and mental health treatment. Um, And I think a lot of that is falling short. And in part, that's because of staffing. We don't have enough staff to run enough small group programs. We don't have enough staff to be facilitating things like ESL programs. A number of the individuals in our care have issues with communication and English as a second language, and we're not making um, communication in English, written and spoken language a priority for these guys so that they can be successful in their educational work, in their uh, vocational work, in their communication. We are speaking with Caitlin Cepeda, candidate for the Democratic nomination for Sheriff of Hampshire County. The primary is September 6th. We're going to continue this conversation. Lots more to talk about right after the break. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Paul Parent Garden Club, every Sunday, 6 to 8 a.m. Brought to you by Winesick Nursery, locally owned and operated since 1954. Visit Mike, Amity, John, and the rest of the team at Winesick Nursery, Route 9 in Hadley, and online at winesicknursery.com. Martha Graham, Mum and Chance, Blind Boys, Cherish the Ladies, Peking Acrobats, Ukraine Philharmonic, Nikki, and Stomp. All on their way to the UMass Fine Arts Center. Mum and Chance in their 50th year. Cherish the ladies. A Celtic Christmas. The Martha Graham Dance Company with the lost Graham masterwork Canticle for Innocent Comedians. Snarky Puppy unleashes their ferocious improvisation. Nikki shines a ray of pop sunshine. And Gina Chavez blends the sound of the Americas with tension and grace. Dance, classical, jazz, theater, plus performances you just can't categorize. Stomp arrives for 
three performances. Head-turning trumpeter Sean Jones leads his quartet on stage, plus visits the UMass High School Jazz Festival. Plan now for a season of uplifting arts performances. Go to the UMass Fine Arts Center website for the full calendar and tickets. Every Friday morning, Monty visits the wine snobs to talk about wine at State Street. But I don't see wine here, Ringo. What do you got? Well, who am I? You're the spirit guy. Uh-oh. So you're taking me down the road of spirit. So our next whiskey is from High Coast. It's called Have, H-A-V, which means sea, like the ocean. Where's High Coast? Sweden. What? This is a Swedish whiskey. Have. And this one was in uh, the top whiskeys of the year list. It was number six. Wow. Right? Swedish whiskey. I mean, I know they have really good food there because of the Swedish chef. Yeah. Naturally. Bork, bork. You have to assemble this whiskey all by yourself without any instructions. That's the <laughs> thing about it. They trap you in this big box and then they give you like just diagrams of what you're supposed to do with it. Yeah, just pictures of grains. It's whiskey from Sweden, from High Coast. And how much is this one? You can have this one for $57.99. You know, like what you there see and that's a good price too find your favorite whiskey and your next favorite whiskey at state street are you an immigrant worried about your future do you want to change your life at Center for New Americans, you can take English classes for free. They help immigrants with jobs, licenses, healthcare, as well as immigration and citizenship. CNA helps you create a better future. Visit our website at cnaam.org. Call 413-587-0084. When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. The only live and local news in the Pioneer Valley and for the Pioneer Valley, WHMP. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Caitlin Cepeda, who is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for sheriff of Hampshire County, the primary, which will decide as a practical matter who will be the next sheriff, even though there will be the formality of a, uh, an election in November. The, the primary is going to decide who the next sheriff will be, so it's really important. I, I'd like to ask you a question that I asked uh, to one of the other candidates, Yvonne Gittleson, when she was here, and it's this, and we were talking a, a bit about this topic before we went on the air, and it has to do with safety at the jail, because my impression, I did check this out with uh, some criminal defense lawyers, um, uh, has been for a long time that Hampshire County was actually a desirable place for uh, persons involved with the criminal justice system to go, whether they're held pretrial or they're, they're serving time, because from the lawyer's point of view, and you can tell me if you think this is wrong or bad information, um, Hampshire County was viewed as a safe place, first and foremost, and, and which is the first and foremost, uh, I think, obligation for the sheriff, which is to keep people safe at the facility. There are a lot of other things that are important, but safety is crucial. And I'm wondering whether you're saying, or whether you are saying that the Hampshire County uh, Jail and Hassle Correction is or is not a safe facility. It has become less safe, I will say. There has been an increase in staff assaults, particularly in the last year to 18 months, one of which um, permanent- This is assaults on staff. Assaults on staff. I'll talk about that first. There are assaults you know, amongst individuals there as well. But you know, increase in staff assaults over the last year to 18 months, including one that permanently disabled a staff member, um, and he's no longer you know, with the facility as well. 
A lot of that has to do with unsafe staffing levels. Most of the staffing across shifts, across days, uh, largely in the security department, but this is you know, bleeding into other departments as well, run short staffed every day. Um, overtime is held regularly across shifts, across days, weeks on end. If you look at the breakdown of the money spent at the facility on payroll and how much we've increased our overtime spending this year, we've already outspent all of last year um, already, just as we come halfway through the calendar year. So that's part of it. It's become more unsafe for staff. That in turn creates a less safe environment for the individuals there. Um, there is less supervision. There are more burnt out staff. There have been an increase um, in staff or on uh, individual assaults on one another there. Not that that was ever a unique thing with the num of, number of gang-related you know, issues we kind of have in prisons and in jails in general, so that's not particularly unique. Overall, yes, it's, you're not getting an assault every single day, that kind of thing, but I will say as my tenure there progressed, it became a less safe environment and continues to this day to be so. You point to staffing shortage. Is this unique to the Hampshire County Jail, or no. is this something that is true across the board for the, what, the 13 jails? 14. Yep. 14 jails and houses of correction? Mm -hmm. It's not unique to Hampshire County. It's not unique to the other HOCs. It's not unique to the DOC. It is not unique to law enforcement. Law enforcement in general, of which corrections is a branch, is having a staffing crisis, the likes of which they've probably never seen, where you used to have hundreds of applicants for a single position, you now have a handful. And of those, the ones that are qualified are even less so. So what you're doing is not only decreasing the number of people you have applying for a particular position, but the kind of pedigree and the ability of that handful is now decreased as well. People simply don't want to be in law enforcement anymore. And this used to be, for some people, a stepping stone to other parts of law enforcement, that they would do their time in a correctional physician, get their feet wet, and then move on to other parts of law enforcement. Some people got into that facility and really loved it and stayed and did their 20 or 30 years. That's not happening anymore. With the availability of other law enforcement positions, people are bypassing corrections altogether. The facility is not also actively recruiting anybody to come in a real meaningful way. And then those folks that we do have internal to the facility at their first opportunity are getting out because it's not a place that they can see themselves doing their 20, their 30 in. You get people who can barely get to their 10 and get vested into the retirement system and the health insurance system. So it's really, it's a crisis across all of corrections, I would say, maybe a little bit more than the rest of law enforcement because we are, you know, the redheaded stepchild, so to speak, of, of corrections, of law enforcement um, corrections is. So we're, we're seeing it across the board. So at the risk of asking an impossible question, what, what would you do about that? I mean, it's given the, the, the nature of the problem that you just described, it mm -hmm. almost sounds insoluble, but it needs a solution. So uh, it's maybe an unfair question, but what's the solution? It's a very challenging um, situation that we're in. What needs to start happening is there needs to start to be active recruiting. And active recruiting starts with education. We start pushing out into the community so that people know what we are, who we are, what we do, and so that people are engaged with the facility and engaged with the discipline of corrections. 
you start pushing out into, we have great universities, great colleges around here that are churning out fantastic graduates in criminal justice and in sociology and all those programs. We're not actively recruiting at any of those job fairs. Mass Hire has regular job fairs. Hampshire County Sheriff's Office is not part of it. This is the summer of all things in the county. There are festivals, there are street events, there are town events that have info booths at them. Hampshire County Sheriff's Office hasn't been a presence any of them. It could be a great recruiting tool, just start there. You should be out talking with high school seniors about corrections being a possible you know, career path for them, either if they don't want to go to college or if there's you know, criminal justice in their future, that this is a great place to be. We need to be actively recruiting younger people um, and we need to start making the facility one that will retain those people by creating engaging, dynamic training, um, lateral opportunities for our security staff, our treatment staff, um, upward promotion of our medical staff, expansion of programming so that people feel like there's a place to go in their career and they're not going to be stagnant doing one through five well-being checks for the next 20 years. Nobody wants to be doing that. They want an opportunity for more, to give back, to serve their community more, to serve the individuals in their care more, and the Hampshire County Sheriff's Office hasn't created that. So, Caitlin Cepeda, who candidate for Democratic nomination for sheriff, let me ask you this, since we only have a minute or two left. There are two other candidates. Mm -hmm. you, you've certainly uh, made distinctions between yourself and your uh, and uh, the, the incumbent sheriff, Pat Kaling. Uh, are there differences that you have with regard to the other candidate, Yvonne Gittleson? And if so, what are they? It's my background in nursing, and it's the advocacy work. Nurses are first and foremost patient advocates. What I'm trying to do with this race is expand that definition of patient from a singular person to now the entity of the sheriff's office. What this office needs is somebody that will go to bat for it, somebody that will be an advocate for it, roll up their sleeves, get in the trenches, and say, this is what my patient, my facility needs whether that's advocating to the legislature for more resources for what it is we need, whether that's advocating to our community for what our individuals in the facility need in terms of job placement, entrepreneurial partnerships, whether that's what our staff needs in terms of recruiting measures, wellness, mental health support, it's the advocacy. What this do office doesn't need is another six years of hand-wringing and indecision. What they do need is somebody that's willing to come up to the plate and say, I'm the one that can fix things. This is what nurses like me do every single day. We come up to the plate and we say, this is what my patient needs, and we make it happen. We're going to leave it there. We've been speaking with Caitlin Sapita, who is a candidate for the Democratic nomination for sheriff of Hampshire County. Hope you'll come back and visit us again during the race. Love to. We appreciate your time today. Thank you very much. Thank you. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. For WHMP News, I'm Jess Tyler. A Northampton man will remain in jail after pleading not guilty in the stabbing death of a woman on Sunday night. The two shared an apartment run by Dial Self Youth and Community Services on Hatfield Street. Braden is expected to be back in court on August 10th. A former Amherst man is now in custody in Maryland. Isaac Villalobos was indicted on multiple charges, including manslaughter, after the death of his infant son in 2019. The four-month-old died at an Amherst home after being administered a lethal dose of adult sleep medication. An arraignment in Hampshire Superior Court in Northampton will be scheduled when Villalobos is returned to Hampshire County. 
Amherst's new director for the newly created CREST program is on the job. Earl Miller will lead the Community Responders for Equity, Safety, and Service organization that will respond to nonviolent emergency calls instead of the police. When did we as a society decide that the answer to every problem in our community was going to be a person with a gun? And I think the police nationally have those same conversations. Miller, a black man who grew up in the foster care system in Hampden County, says his life experience gives him compassion for others, a necessary aspect of the job. And Chester residents will need to continue to boil their water after a water main break drained the town's water supply over the weekend. Town officials have been distributing bottled water at the Chester Town Hall, although the water main was fixed Sunday night. Town Administrator Kathy Warden says she hopes they can test again and lift the boil water order by the end of the week. Strong to severe thunderstorms possible after 2 p.m. Some storms producing localized flooding, gusty winds, and small hail. Humid in the upper 80s to right around 90 degrees. Storms should be gone by 8 p.m. Mostly sunny day on Wednesday with temperatures in the upper 80s. I'm Nick Oresco on 101.5 WHMP. This News Minute is brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. Yo soy Johan Rechivega con la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media. Un juez federal se negó el lunes a retrasar el próximo juicio de Steve Bannon, ex asesor del expresidente Donald Trump que enfrenta cargos de desacato al Congreso luego de negarse durante meses a cooperar con el Comité de la Cámara que investiga la insurrección del Capitolio del 6 de enero. Bannon todavía tiene programado ir a juicio la próxima semana a pesar de que le dijo al Comité de la Cámara el sábado por la noche que ahora está preparado para testificar. A menos que haya un fallo de la Corte de Apelaciones u otra demora, el juicio comenzará mientras el comité continúa con sus audiencias de alto perfil durante los disturbios. Los fiscales federales argumentaron el lunes que la nueva oferta de comparecencia de Bannon no cambiaría ningún delito penal cometido por no comparecer antes. Randall Eliason, un exfiscal, estuvo de acuerdo con esa opinión y expresó que esto es un desacato criminal. No puedes borrar el cargo decidiendo aparecer más tarde. En otras informaciones, la Corte Judicial Suprema de Massachusetts dice que la votación por correo no viola la Constitución del Estado. El Partido Republicano de Massachusetts había estado desafiando la nueva ley del Estado, denominada Ley de Votos, que permite que cualquier persona vote por correo por cualquier motivo. El proyecto de ley fue promulgado el mes pasado por el gobernador republicano Charlie Baker. El Partido Republicano del Estado argumentó que permitir permanentemente la votación por correo conduciría al fraude electoral. La orden de la Corte Judicial emitida el lunes decía, se niega la solicitud de los demandantes de prohibir al secretario que ponga en vigencia la ley de votos. La ley Votes requiere que el secretario de Estado envíe por correo las solicitudes de boletas a todos los votantes registrados 45 días antes de las elecciones primarias, lo que significa que el secretario William Galvin debe enviar las boletas por correo el 23 de julio de este año. Yo soy Johan Rashi Vega y esta fue la síntesis informativa de Holyoke Media a través de WHMP. This News Minute has been brought to you by our partners at Holyoke Media. We're talking baseball, Klazuski, Campanella, talking baseball, the man and Bobby Feller, the scooter, the barber and the nuke. They knew them all from Boston to Dubuque, especially Willie. This is Bill Newman, WHMP. The Duke, we should point out in that song, actually is not Duke Goldman. Are we sure? We're pretty sure, just based on an age analysis. <laughs> that would be Duke Snyder of the New, New Brooklyn York... Brooklyn Dodgers. New York's favorite team for some. 
and there are those who are still in mourning about the Dodgers having left Brooklyn for Los Angeles. Can't believe that happened. Uh, I also would like to point out another really important fact. We have to start with this today. Duke Goldman, I understand you're two-timing us and have another radio gig. Tell us about that. Yes, so I am now going to be appearing. In fact, I already appeared this past Friday. Uh, generally, every other Friday at 4 p.m., I am going to be on uh, after- Afternoon Buzz. The Afternoon Buzz. Uh, with Buzz Eisenberg, and my segment is called Fair Play. So it's looking at sports and analyzing to the degree to which sports has fair play, going Beyond baseball, right now we're talking in particular about the Washington Commanders football team, the renamed team owned by one of the most avid racist, misogynist, homophobic people in America. And I'm not talking about the orange-haired man. I'm talking about Daniel Snyder. So we are looking at that, and I will be uh, teaching a class this Friday and next Friday at UMass to high school students who are at a summer program in the, in the McCormick Sports Management School, and they're going to be learning about this, and we're going to be having them consider what the Washington commanders should be doing to repair the untold damage they have done. Sounds like it would be an amazing show to listen to. Yeah. Right here on WHMP. <laughs> Four o'clock Fridays with the <laughs> afternoon buzz for fair play. Thank you so much. That's that's really interesting. I, I know uh, Duke that this fits into one of your primary interests in in baseball, uh, and that is the Negro Leagues, which you have studied, written about, edited pieces about. Uh, uh, you're a baseball historian. You're a member of uh, the Society of American Baseball Research, a prominent member of Saber. Uh, and I know you've been giving a presentation. You were just been giving a presentation on the Negro Leagues, and you have a lot to say about that. That is, I think, quite nuanced. So I would appreciate your telling our listeners where you've been, what you've been doing, and then get to the substance of the argument that is going on about what is fair in terms of baseball and its history. So I was in Birmingham, Alabama, at a Negro Leagues conference. And I did a presentation with another Sabre member, Ben Alter, and the presentation was a response to Major League Baseball in December 2020 declaring that seven Negro Leagues were major leagues and are major leagues. What they did was decided that two Negro National Leagues, because there were two of them, and five other less leagues that didn't last as long, including there was a Negro American League. So for many years, there was both an American League and a National League in black baseball. But excluding some of the leagues, excluding post-1948, they didn't include those. But data from all those leagues, and by the way, they're still accumulating this data. They're still finding new data. What they did, though, was... Uh, by declaring these leagues major, they were now saying this data needs to be uh, within major league data. And baseballreference.com then went ahead. And it's not clear if they decided this on their own, if Major League Baseball asked them to do this. This is one of the problems. Nobody knows how any of this has been done. But several months after uh, the December 2020 announcement, baseballreference.com 
put Negro League data into their Major League databases. Now, for a lot of the players, players like the legendary Josh Gibson, for instance, the Black Babe Ruth, who legend has it hit 800 home runs, he never played in the American League or the National League. So his data goes in. All of his Negro League data is now considered Major League data. But there are a total of 42 players who both played in the Negro Leagues that major leagues has now designated MLB as major league and in the Negro Leagues. And with those players, what they did was more or less a data dump. They threw all the data together and they said, it's all the same. And the problem is they did it without an open and transparent process. So what do we have now? We have data that is combined. Well, in some cases, that combined data may give us uh, an idea, a better idea, that the players were were big-time successes. For instance, Minnie Mignoso was just uh, inducted into the Hall of Fame. He played for the Cubans, and he played he, in the major leagues. He played for Chicago. And he played for Chicago White Sox, and he played for the Cleveland Indians. His war figure, wins above replacement, was enhanced by adding the Negro League data. And perhaps, although it's hard to know for sure, that may have helped his case to get into the Hall of Fame. Okay, Um, but then you have other examples like Willie Mays, for example. Willie Mays hit, as far as we know, 660 Major League home runs. So far, BaseballReference.com has added only 1948. By the way, Mays played in 1949 in the Negro Leagues, but that's not in the database. But 1948, when Willie was 17, he played for the Black Barons. They have added a a small sampling of at-bats into his data but they have not added any home runs. So he's still, at this moment, got 660. That's going to change. At my conference, I found out that the, the, the experts on this know that Willie Mays hit at least one and maybe two or three home runs that need to go in the database. So his numbers are going to change. Now, some of you might say, okay, so what? 660, 661, 662, what's the diff? The difference is whether or not Duke Golden is going to be able to sleep at night, among other things. I mean, this is no. I'm serious. It matters. It matters. You know, a lot of us. I, I'm not going to divulge the numbers I use. A lot of us use these numbers in like our emails, and you know, would people care if Babe Ruth's number all of a sudden became seven seventeen? I think a lot of people would have a little issue with that. So even that, I don't think is the biggest issue. From my uh, standpoint, the biggest issue is more people like Monty Irvin, the guy that I'm writing a biography of, his data has been changed dramatically because Monty played about 10 seasons in the Negro Leagues and then nine seasons in the, the National League, okay? So on one hand, his data is improved because by the way, there were 25 significant players who played a, a substantial amount in the Negro Leagues and in the American League and National League. And of those 25, 18 were position players. And all 18 had better statistics in the Negro Leagues than they did when they came to the formerly white major leagues. All right. So Monty Irvin's statistics have been enhanced. This is where it gets nuanced. Having said that, his statistics only in the Negro Leagues were better overall because he played better in the Negro Leagues. When you combine his data... He was younger. Well, he was younger, and yes, by the time he got to the major leagues, it, uh, what was then called the major leagues, he was 30 years old. He performed better at a younger age before World War II, before you know three years of rust and inactivity, and so he was better there. His numbers overall are better, but when he is compared to other Negro League stars, the Josh Gibsons, the Buck Leonards, who didn't get to the white major leagues, he now is lower in the rankings as a Negro League star. So 
I don't think it helped the consideration. Now, he's already in the Hall of Fame, so you could say, why does it matter? Well, to historians, it matters. We're trying to assess the, 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 um, the stature of all these players and where they, they rank, and it's changed. So ultimately, it feels like the decision was made without proper consideration. And I don't think they did it for the right reasons. Why all of a sudden in December 2020 did this announcement happen? Okay, so here's a radio trick. Let, let the other guy at the other microphone ask one of the questions. Otherwise, I just become irrelevant and just going to be all buzz Sorry. all the time. Or the other radio <laughs> trick is to leave it on a cliffhanger and take a break when you're supposed to and come back at the end of the break to make the listeners listen to the commercials. Okay, let's do that right now. We'll be back with Duke Goldman right after this. This is Bill Newman, When it's happening here in the Valley, we're talking about it. We have a very unique and lethal combination of emboldened white supremacy in this country and unfettered access to guns. We need to keep talking about the intersection of white supremacy and guns. Guns are used in order to you know, elicit fear and power and control uh, by white supremacists. And it's not an issue that's going away easily. 101.5, 1400, and 1240. We are the Valley. We are WHMP. Hello, this is Linda DeGillis, Vice President and Trust Officer at Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services. Many of our customers are surviving spouses who have found themselves suddenly in charge of their household's financial savings and investments, which had previously been handled exclusively by their late spouse. A number of our female customers have told us that one of the reasons they moved their accounts to GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services was because they felt patronized or talked down to by their spouse's financial advisor. At GSB Wealth Management and Trust Services, our team of professionals will always treat you with respect and compassion. If you are looking for portfolio management, estate settlement services, or trust services, please call us, Greenfield Savings Bank Wealth Management and Trust Services at 413-775-8335. That's 413-775-8335. Or stop into any GSB office or contact us online through the wealth management section at greenfieldsavings.com. Thank you. Hi, I'm Kate Kelly, public health nurse with the City of Northampton. The Northampton Health Department is holding vaccination clinics in Northampton and other locations in the region. Outdoor walk-in availability has reopened at the Northampton High School. Dates, locations, and appointments for all clinic sites can be found at the City of Northampton website. Go to www.northamptonma.gov and click on vaccine clinics. The clinics continue to offer Pfizer, pediatric Pfizer and Moderna vaccines, and in special situations, Johnson & Johnson. Clinics will also offer boosters to anyone ages five and up. The COVID vaccine is free for anyone from any community. Please bring your vaccine card and insurance card. If you do not have health insurance, you can still have a vaccine. Public health nurses are available at every clinic for your questions or concerns. Booster shots are one more layer of protection against COVID-19, and they prevent a huge number of people from needing to go to the hospital. We want to protect our most vulnerable or simply unlucky neighbors from getting the virus. We can't afford to let our guard down. The Western Mass Business Show with local dynamo Tara Brewster, Saturdays at 11 and Sundays at 2, only on WHMP. Brought to you by Business West. The vital business news in Western Mass is in Business West. The Western Mass Business Show with Tara Brewster, WHMP.
This is Bill Newman, WHMP. We continue our conversation with Duke Goldman. This is Talking Baseball with the Duke. And before the break, we were left. Oh, I'm sorry. Did I, did I'm just fading it. Just I, keep I, doing the radio <laughs> show. <laughs> I know I want to hear more about the Red Sox. Something. Well, I hear more about the sick of the DJ on the other side. There we go. Listen okay. to me Monday through Friday, 6 to 9. <laughs> Where he'll play Red Sox baseball sure. on request. Yes. Okay. So, Duke Goldman. Uh, help me out on, uh, on this. Uh, we were talking before the break about the Negro Leagues. You are a, a baseball historian. You've written a lot about this topic. And you are critical of Major League Baseball for having, in the way in which it combined Negro League statistics into Major League Baseball statistics. Um, tell us, in your view, why Major League Baseball did this. You've given us some information about how badly Major League Baseball has done this. But... Why did they do it, and what is your remedy? Perhaps it's a thumbnail sketch you could give us today. Your remedy for the problems that this has caused. So it seems pretty clear to almost everybody I've spoken to that the timing of the announcement of declaring the Negro Leagues as major leagues was in the post-George Floyd world. Right? It was a response to, okay, black lives matter. That's legitimate. I'm good with that. But why did it happen then? what was happening all along. And also, Major League Baseball didn't commission a study. They declared this. They announced this. Nobody knows how it happened. It seems to me that their orientation is to whitewash their racist past. And this creates that smokescreen. When the real problem is there are many players from the Negro Leagues who have not yet gotten consideration for induction into the Hall of Fame. Wait a minute. Cooperstown's not Major League Baseball? Well, you know, my view is Cooperstown and Major League Baseball go hand in glove. They are in cahoots. And they work together. And Cooperstown has their own agenda. What do they want? They want live players in the Hall of Fame. They want one or two stars every year, people like Big Poppy, so that all the fans will come out and celebrate them. The Negro League players are dead, almost all of them. Certainly all of them that merit consideration or the ones that, that, you know, that are already in. And of the ones who are not yet in, they're all gone. So they're not really interested in those people. My view is what they need to do is, and this would be a great promotional opportunity for them, they are improving and redoing their exhibit on black baseball, supposed to be done by next year. At that time, they should make an announcement saying that they are now going to consider, I think it should be for something like 20 years, Negro League players who merit consideration, who have not yet gotten a chance to be considered for the Hall of Fame. They should add historians, um, and I'll talk about this in more detail in the future, who would be on all of their veterans committees, who would give information and data on some of the players who ought to get consideration for the next 20 years or so, they should be voting on some of the deserving black stars. And my intention over the course of the coming months and years is to periodically talk about some of those players, players like Cannonball Dick Redding and Dick Lundy and John Donaldson and Rap Dixon, people who I'm sure almost everybody out there has never heard of, players who were major league stars. I look forward to that conversation. Um, let me ask you this, Duke, because we have a f few minutes left, and I know that you would like to c 
share with Monty your views on the Red Sox having <laughs> won an extra inning game, a very exciting game. They won after the Yankees scored two runs in their half of the inning. The Red Sox came back, scored three and one. And that, then the next night they came and you know, the Yankees scored six runs in the first three innings. They demolished the Yankees 11 to six at the end, and the Yankees manager managed to get thrown out just for good measure. So what, what's your view? Is this the new Red Sox? They're coming back. It's going to be the resurgent Red Sox. They're going to be if not the winner, it's seems unlikely the American League East. The first wild card, they're going to run through the postseason, and Monty will be here celebrating the world champion Boston Red Sox. Is that how this is going to work out? What do you mean first wild card? The Red Sox are they're a juggernaut. The Yankees are frauds. Come on. <laughs> they could have an epic collapse. They're going to have an epic collapse. They, they do that all the time. You know, so what if they're 14 games ahead? No, really, let's, let's face it. The Red Sox had a good weekend, right? The Yankees kind of imploded. Um, the, the, the Yankees, you know, Yankees pulled, pulled defeat out of the jaws of victory twice, right? Does that change anything? Not really. I mean, the Yankees are going to win well above 100 games. All they have to do is play basically a 500 baseball the rest of the year to get to 100 victories. I still think they're going to end up with 110 or more. The Red Sox are going to be in the wild card race. They have a decent shot at first wild card. Although, notice last night the Rays beat them 10 to 5. I don't know how the Rays do it. I don't know who half the guys on the Rays team are. They still keep winning. Right? They know what they're doing. They are a very intelligent organization. They use analytics to its best advantage. They're always in contention. I think the Red Sox are going to be battling it out for the Ray, with the Rays probably for the first wild card spot. And while we're on this topic, which is the American League East race, what's happened to the Toronto Blue Jays? The juggernaut Toronto Blue Jays have lost nine out of their last ten games. What's with that? Well, what it shows you is, you know, predictions are not worth the, the paper they're written on. Or, Everybody, or the airtime that we're giving you. <laughs> Everybody thought they were going to be good, and so far they're not. I, I wouldn't count them out, but they're just not nearly as good as people thought. Um, on the other hand, my Mets have Max Scherzer back, and he looks phenomenal. And Jacob deGrom is filthy in the minor leagues so far. If we've got Scherzer and deGrom back, maybe we're looking at a Subway Series, and... In a Subway series, if Scherzer and DeGrom are at the top of their game, I'm picking the Mets. Nice. In order for that to happen, a Subway series, for those of you who could care less about this, <laughs> Subway series means they're going from uh, Yankee Stadium to, what is it now? City, City Field. Field, right. Uh, across Borough, across City, uh, Major League World Series. But Duke, for that to happen, the New York Yankees are somehow going to have to beat the Houston Astros, which doesn't happen very easily, even without them cheating. And well, who is that? He's now a manager somewhere. Can't remember part his of that. name yeah, is. What that? Oh, that guy, Alex Cora? Is that who you're talking about? <laughs> the Astros are Alex good. Cora. The Astros are good. And let's face it, the Atlanta Braves and the Los, Los Angeles Dodgers and the National League are good. There's really five top-notch teams in baseball. And that's what makes it exciting. The Yankees could win 118 games, it wouldn't surprise me, and set an all-time record and still lose in the playoffs. And which by is, the way... Which is what happened to the Cleveland Indians in 1954. Correct. And, and the Seattle Mariners, when they won 116 games in 2001, did not make it to the World Series. Right. So Major League Baseball looks a lot like hockey or basketball at this point, which is you have a season, everyone roots and roots and roots and roots, and then they get to the real season, which is... Uh, a three out of five game series to see who goes on to the next round in the playoffs. Is it like the electoral college where you can win the popular vote of victories and still lose the election? Something like that. Yeah. 
And, you know, Major League Baseball always thinks when there's a bad idea, let's have more of a bad idea. We don't have enough playoff teams, so let's add even more. And the players have to tell them, no, not that many teams, you know. I don't know. Well, there are 30 Major League Baseball teams and 12 of them, right? Yeah, but Major League Baseball wanted to make it 14. Hey, let's make it 20. Well, you know, (laughs) what's a few teams between friends? You know, come on. Well, what's a few playoff games among friends? Well, that's what they want, right? But after a while, if you cheapen the regular season and it's 162 games long, that's a bit of a problem, you know? I mean, what do we need 162 games if we're only going to eliminate a handful of games? That's what happened with hockey. Hockey had a point where 16 teams were making the playoffs and five weren't. Uh, Regular season? What do we need a regular season for? You know, right. There were two different seasons. There was the regular season and the Stanley Cup. Right. 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 So, uh, you know, too much of a good thing is too much. You know, yeah, everybody likes playoff games. I like playoff games. They're great. And they keep people's interest because if you're rooting, for example, the the Cleveland, what are the the Cleveland commanders? The uh, Guardians. Guardians, Sorry. Cleveland Guardians. Uh, They're a 500 team now, but they are very much in in the playoffs. So people keep going to the games because they can get to the playoffs. That's real. Right. That's good. But, you know, again, you add too many teams, and eventually you have situations where teams that are 10 games below 500 are getting into the playoffs, and that's not so good. And they could end up winning the World Series. Right. And then that that also cheapens the product. You know, it's always about short-term versus long-term game uh, gain. MLB owners, short-term. Short-term, short-term, how about some more short-term? Who cares what happens in the future? Run the game into the ground, we don't care. Short-term meaning get our team into the playoffs because that will keep people coming to the stadiums right. during the regular season. Right. And what happens after that doesn't matter so right. much. Increase the revenue and you know, uh, pump up the, what we can charge and make money. That's it. We leave it there. We've been speaking with Duke Goldman. This is Talking Baseball with the Duke. This Monday at the Shea, The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. Zach Sherwin, from Crazy Ex-Girlfriend and Epic Rap Battles of History, bringing his incredible wordplay to a live crossword puzzle on stage at the Shea. A panel of guest comedians will solve this actual crossword puzzle while Zach Sherwin takes us down a rabbit hole of comedy, music, trivia, and wordplay. No crossword expertise needed. The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. With special guest problem solvers, Smith College's Dr. Jennifer Malkowski, the founder of Smith's Video Game Research Lab, comedy as a weapon comedian Kim DeShields, and me, Monty Belmonte. The Crossword Show with Zach Sherwin. Monday night, 7 o'clock, Shea Theater, Turner's Falls. The only live and local talk in the valley and for the valley. WHMP Northampton, WHMQ Greenfield, a Northampton Radio Group station. It's 10 o'clock.